I'm just checking that all my settings are. Hello. Hello. I can hear myself in your headphones a little bit. Oh, okay. Everybody and welcome back to another episode of All Each Other Has. I am Carrie talking with my sister Ellie and this is the third episode in our three-part series on death and spectacle. Um, I know it's probably been a tough couple listens but I think these conversations are really interesting and also really important. Um, last week we had Jess and Layla Murphy come on which was a really special fascinating and moving episode in in my opinion um and this week we're gonna kind of tie up some loose ends but also introduce some new themes and recording with the past two episodes got both of us really interested in burials and the way that land is used in commemorating the dead um and I I wanted to start by kind of fine-tuning something I had brought up in a previous episode when we discussed the narrative around 9-11 or the popular narrative, at least back then, as the attacks being the end of American innocence and that not being accurate. I think what we didn't really talk about is that innocence means two things. And one of those definitions obviously is freedom from guilt or freedom from sin, but another is naivete. I think in the case of 9-11 being understood as the end of American innocence, it's the latter definition. I think Ellie and I both, maybe more me, um, often think about pre- versus post-lapsarian <laughs> ideas, um, especially when it comes to knowledge and awareness of suffering. Um, and I guess 9-11 in some ways represents kind of a post-Lapsarian America. It makes me think of this James Baldwin quote, it is the innocence which constitutes the crime. Wow. Yeah. When we look at that quote, there are so many examples in the American imagination, in popular culture, in the way American history is told, where that rings true. And I feel like often the role of nostalgia in history telling can be really dangerous. And I think we're going to talk about some examples where that is apparent. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is what Carrie and I love to talk about, because it's, it's really what we studied in in college. Um, And I think ever since we both read Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States, which is given a shout out in Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> um, and I'm sure at this point has become somewhat dated. American Studies, our, both of our majors and our mom's major, uh, is all about looking at history through the lens of the oppressed, not the oppressor. Because as Howard Zinn once said, you know, history is written by the victors. It's you know, it's important to challenge the the dominant prevailing narrative. Um, so I remember reading a people's history of the United States and, you know, it starts with all the people, all the native people that Christopher Columbus and the settlers slaughtered that I never learned about when I was, you know, in lower school talking about 
Christopher Columbus and his three ships and then the pilgrims and all that. So, you know, obviously you're a kid, but the history is a lot more complicated than that. Um, and since then we've seen a proliferation of, you know, of literature about this, um, you know, most recently you can look at the 1619 project that was commissioned by the New York Times, um, led by the historian Nicole Hannah Jones, which has become a Hulu documentary series that recently premiered and I know is also supplying curriculum um, to high schools. This is something that is, for some reason, very hotly debated in some parts of the country. Um, people, you know, talk thinking of critical race theory, which Carrie can go into greater detail about, but that isn't a new concept, um, it becoming such a trigger for certain people. Anyway, we wanted this final episode to be about the victims of spectacular or hidden deaths that have gone overlooked. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting, all of the uproar over the 1619 Project, because the central thesis is not necessarily a new one, right? That American liberty has always been dependent on American exploitation of one group or another. Um, I think... The first time I saw that really articulated, at least in a classroom setting, was in reading Edmund Morgan's American Slavery, American Freedom, which is like part of the American Studies canon. It's an amazing book, but a lot of it deals with Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia in 1676 and how the start of universal white male suffrage, regardless of land ownership, and in Virginia, the creation of the House of Commons was predicated upon the entrenchment of slavery and a system that equated blackness with enslavement irrevocably. Mm. Um, and right now I'm reading an amazing new book by one of my favorite historians, Jefferson Cowie, called Freedom's Dominion. And I'm in some of the footnotes, no big deal, <laughs> um, because it is about the county in which Eufaula, Alabama is located in Barber County in Southeast Alabama on the border with Georgia is called Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. One thing he talks about a lot, though, is the use of the rhetoric of freedom in promoting causes that seem to be the opposite. So the whole, you know, rhetoric around states' rights, which we see with secessionists and, and the Civil War and about the freedom of Alabama free now and forever when mm. these are places and people upholding the institution of slavery um, is really interesting. And we see that also with George Wallace, who's from Barber County, Alabama, mm. in his Segregation Forever speech in which he says freedom or liberty. I forgot. We'll have to go back into into the book. But you know, a dozen more times than he says segregation. Right. And, and hang on, remind me for a second. So Governor George Wallace, he was the governor of Alabama, like during the 60s or 50s, Carrie? Um, and in the 60s, and also, I think, again, in the 70s. And he, you know, Alabama was particularly resistant to mm, school integration. integration. I think Barber County was actually the last county in Alabama wow. to be integrated. And this is a book, it's amazing, but it's about 
the need for stronger federal intervention um, when it comes to upholding the freedom of all peoples um, mm. in state politics. And it goes from Indian removal, which was is really central to the story of Alabama and Alabama becoming a state and a plantation society um, all the way through the building of, of prisons and, and mass incarceration and voting rights too, and talks about reconstruction and how it actually, I guess this is a commonly understood thing today, but the problem with reconstruction is it was a failure because it didn't go far enough. Mm. Um, but I just wanted to read this quote from Jefferson Cowie quickly. Americans celebrate their independence from British colonial rule as the fountainhead of their freedom. Yet they proceeded to use their freedom to seize the continent and replace the existing people with both themselves and human beings stolen from Africa. After the expulsion of indigenous people of the South was underway, Choctaw leader Levy Colbert asked if the spirit of liberality and equality which distinguishes the United States from all empires was merely jealousy and defense of their own particular rights and unwillingness to be oppressed themselves. The answer to his question reveals a foundational American irony. Independence from colonial rule is often meant not an absence of tyranny, but the opposite. The right to practice tyranny in the name of the universal philosophical category, freedom. I think we've sort of made a study. I mean, we're, I'm not an academic. I'm not nearly as academic as, as even you, Carrie. But I really loved studying how the dark underbelly of all the history that I've been taught um, and just understanding it from, you know, from the oppressed, from the less powerful point of view, I think is really important. And I'm so glad you brought up James Baldwin. We stand James Baldwin. What an amazing, amazing writer and speaker. And I know you and I are both obsessed with the Baldwin-Buckley debate that happened in 1965 at Cambridge University. This was the debate between two Americans, James Baldwin and William F. Buckley. Carrie has done so much work um, on William F. Buckley. She was a research assistant um, and archival assistant for a documentary production company that was making a documentary about him. So you should really Sorry. Um, I wasn't an assistant. I was a producer. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Thank sorry. you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a producer. Excuse me. Um, so I'll let you speak to this, but basically um, they were brought to Cambridge. It's something you should really watch on YouTube um, because James Baldwin is one of a handful of black people in the room. It's all men. This is 1965, Cambridge. It is now with very great pleasure and a very great sense of honor that I called Mr. James Baldwin to speak third to this motion. But the question that is posed was, is the American dream at the expense of the American Negro? And Baldwin is in the affirmative that it has been at the expense of the American Negro. And Buckley is the negative. Is that what you say? <laughs> I don't know. I never did debate. It would seem to me the proposition before the House, if I put it that way, is the American dream at the expense of the American Negro? All the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro is a question hideously loaded, and that one's response to that question, or one's reaction to that question, has to depend on effect, an effect on where you find yourself in the world, what your sense of reality is, what your system of reality is. That is... So, speaking of 
the role of soil and archaeology, history making and history telling. Baldwin says, isn't, isn't 400, 400 years, years enough? enough? 400 years, at least three wars. The American soil is full of the corpses of my ancestors. Why is my freedom or my citizenship or my right to live there? How is it conceivably a question now? That reminds me, though, I, I once met an archaeologist in Eufaula named Margaret Russell, who was really amazing. And we were talking about Lake Eufaula. And Lake Eufaula is a man-made lake um, on the Alabama-Georgia border near the Chattahoochee River um, that was built in the 60s. And Alabama and Georgia used to be the home of the, the Muscogee, who were forcibly removed from the area in the 1830s. Um, and that's why there's another town in Oklahoma that's also called Eufaula because of the Trail of Tears. And our fourth great-grandfather was instrumental in the removal of the Muscogee from this area, which is a hard truth to reckon with, but I think it's important to acknowledge. And he's somebody who's celebrated in this town in Eufaula as this, quote, great Indian fighter, um, an ethnic cleansing specialist. Jeez. But Lake Eufaula formerly was sort of this last persistent um, Muscogee. It was on unincorporated land, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers uh, cr created Lake Eufaula in the 60s, and they've been criticized often <laughs> for creating structures and, and filling lands and not being necessarily sensitive to, one, the people who are being displaced. We see this with the creation of the interstate highway system, um, but also not being sensitive to the archaeology and the people who are literally interred there. Um, but Margaret Russell said to me, the dirt doesn't lie. And she was talking about Lake Eufaula and the artifacts that will periodically be found in the lake, which is this tourist destination for big bass fishing now, which is weird. Um, well, yeah, so it, it goes without saying that America has never been innocent ever since it was founded. Um, and so this idea that obviously what happened on 9-11 was insane. Certainly, I hope the craziest thing I ever experienced during my lifetime. Um, obviously, there's been two wars and COVID, but I mean, that kind of surprise attack in, on the city, in, you know, in which you live. But, but it's hardly, you know, it was hardly an innocent nation under attack. Obviously, it's 3,000 innocent people died. Um, let's be very clear about that. But in terms of looking at our history, the canon of our history, um, it's not, there really isn't a pre and post lapsarian moment that is fictitious, right? That's made up. That's what we're saying. I mean, yes, but also if we understand post lapsarian to be about knowledge of suffering and like the amount of people, billions of people, well, that's in the world, but millions of Americans who watched it happen on TV, 
I mean, we talked, we've talked a little bit about the 90s as being perceived as this innocent moment before, you know, the hysteria of Y2K or 9-11 or, you know, two wars um, before the internet as this like prelapsarian moment. But there were also moments, historical moments, uh, mass media moments that kind of debunk that narrative. Uh, People also watched the LA uprising happen on TV, the beating of Rodney King. They... That was a a decade earlier, basically, right? In 1992. Right. Matthew Shepard. I mean, horrible things happening in the 90s. Of course, the Oklahoma City bombing, um, homegrown terrorism. And we've talked a bit about how that figured very differently in the public consciousness than the 9-11 did. Um, But I'm glad that you brought up the World Trade Center because uh, I was thinking in in the Marita Sturkin piece, which we've discussed a lot, she has a section called Footprints. And it was really important to the public and to the people who built the memorial um, for the 9-11 victims, that nothing be built upon the footprints of where the tower stood because that was sanctified ground um, and nothing should be built over it. And that's where the reflection pools are now. But there are so many other places on the American landscape. And I think it's helpful to like think about this in terms of land and geography that should be sanctified or one would hope they would be sanctified, but they just aren't um, often due to the nature of the kind of victims that died there. In the past couple of years and sort of in the tail end of when I was in college, often there's an acknowledgement, you know, either at the start of a class or a lecture um, It happened recently when I went to a performance at BAM in downtown Brooklyn. There's an acknowledgement of what indigenous land we are sitting on, standing on, you know, being educated on. So for me in in Brooklyn, it's the Lenape. Um, When I was at Stanford, often the Muwekma were invoked and sometimes people sort of laugh, like, this is too much, this is too woke, I can't believe, you know, I think it depends on the context. At Stanford, I think nowadays, before you enter a party, you, an all-campus party, you say that before reading the meaning of consent, Um, which I'm not sure if it's totally appropriate there, because it's just not going to be taken seriously. Um, but well, I think what, what can be sometimes more meaningful, uh, is, is just education. You know, I've learned so much even just in preparation for this episode. Um, and I know we'll delve into this with greater detail eventually, but in this amazing book from 2020 called the undocumented Americans by Carla Corneo Villavicencio which was amazing. I only read the second chapter about Ground Zero, but I did not know that so many first responders were undocumented immigrants who were just trying to help and make some money um, and were completely preyed upon and taken advantage of. Yeah, by by subcontractors. 
she has a great line that's like the first responders were firemen or firefighters the second responders were undocumented immigrants and the detail that these subcontractor companies who needed more manpower for the cleanup drove to like Nassau County and Suffolk County on Long Island looking for migrant workers is really strange but powerful how little that they were paid Mm -hmm. um yeah, I, I would love to just just read a few things that struck me. Um, during the cleanup efforts, the lines for cleaning jobs were hundreds of people long, and companies just picked everyone up and put them in trucks. The Americans who owned the contracting companies were all white, and they hired Hispanic people who had the golden ticket of American citizenship and were bilingual. So they hired these Hispanic people as subcontractors who dealt directly with the um, undocumented laborers. And she writes, contractors mastered a plantation model in their line of work, exploiting whatever sense of community that might exist among Latinx people. The workers think there are people along the chain of command who are watching out for them, but melanin and accents are ineffective binding substances. Mm. And she interviews a number of people. She goes to a support meeting for, for people who were there in the immediate days and weeks following 9-11. She speaks to one man, Milton Vejeo. He was a nighttime security guard at the World Trade Center, and he wanted to help. He was on the subway on his way home when the news broke. So he volunteered to help with the cleanup. And he was, I mean, he was paid, but he, he went there willingly. He was assigned to clean basements where he waded waist deep through dirty water and chemicals. He tied plastic grocery bags around his ankles. The dust was the hardest to clean because it blinded him and stuck to his wet clothing. He wasn't given goggles. The subcontractors gave him air masks, but they were flimsy and broke easily. After a few days of work, he started spitting out mucus. Something scratched at the back of his throat, so he had to keep clearing it. Something wet and dry at the same time. After one week, he got his first paycheck from the subcontractor, $60 a day for working a 12-hour shift. Some days were longer than 12 hours. When he tried cashing the check, it bounced. I just didn't know about any of this, Carrie. Did no, you? No, I definitely did not either. I also was struck by how these individuals' status as undocumented also made it harder in the aftermath to access the victim compensation fund mm-hmm. for first responders and people who lived in the area who, who developed health issues afterwards and are now memorialized in kind of an afterthought at the World Trade Center today. And the I think it's called like the Memorial Glades. Their names aren't there. Um, it's supposed to be for the people who are sick, continuing to die, have died, in the aftermath of 9-11 due to the dust. Um, and I also thought it was interesting that a woman said providing proof that she was receiving treatment in a local hospital's World Trade Center worker program had helped her avoid deportation once mm-hmm. when her home was raided by ICE agents. Right. I also... This is kind of, I feel embarrassed. I didn't realize that ICE was created in the wake of 9-11. Right. And this goes back to our questions and conversations about the meaning of citizenship. And it also debunks this 
standardized narrative about 9-11, especially the cleanup, that it was this extraordinary moment of an, a united America, when that really wasn't true for everybody. I also thought Carla Corneo Vicencio's discussion of the Delivery Boys Memorial was really powerful. Mm, and I remember seeing that in the museum. And this also brings up some of the questions in Philip Stone and Alex Grebenar about the kitchification of tragic places, because one criticism is often that it standardizes a certain narrative and doesn't allow for polysemic interpretations. But this makeshift memorial, as well as the the pillar that had all of these marks and signatures from first responders, is an example of a spontaneous, maybe seemingly more authentic kind of memorialization. So um, it says in Spanish, I'm not going to try and read it in Spanish, but in memory of the delivery boys who died, was made by other delivery men themselves. She writes, the undocumented immigrants who died on 9-11 worked in restaurants, so notably Windows on the World, in housekeeping and security. They were also delivery men. Um, so there was a bike left tied to a pole near the Twin Towers, presumed to have belonged to a delivery man. And acrylic flowers, a makeshift memorial was created. Um, and I want to read the story of one such victim. His name was Fernando Jimenez Molinar. He worked at a pizza shop nearby. He was 19 from Mexico. He had two roommates who were also undocumented. They were the ones who called his mom when he didn't come home the night of 9-11. His mom hadn't wanted him to come to America, but he went anyway. This ties into a lot of the themes we're discussing today. But Charles Hirsch, the city's chief medical examiner, who, according to Villa Vicencio, became the gatekeeper to the official list of World Trade Center victims, which at the end of all their accounting had 2,749 names of deaths that had been ruled homicides that would be inscribed on the memorial. Someone who worked for him, uh, the director of public affairs, basically said this list accounts for everyone known or reported to have been there. There are no unknowns. And that was really powerful because there are so many unknowns and a lot of people who were undocumented records of their existence right, or their, right. their presence, you know, are few and far between if they exist at all. Well, but yeah, those because are unknowns. Right. And, and even though he defended it um, and, you know, I think he believes he did everything he could to include, to, to have this federal program be inclusive um, you know, in order for victims to be recognized by the fund, they had to show paperwork proving they worked at Ground Zero or lost someone that day. And I'm just reading from from um, Carla's words, but the undocumented often work in clever ways to leave no paper trail. There is no telling how many were killed because restaurant owners and managers have refused to come forward with the names of missing people for fear that they will be fined for employing undocumented laborers. Um so I, I thought I thought that was that was really interesting right. too. Is just that of course there are so many unknowns, um, and they were unknowns before this happened, and they continue to be unknowns 
they were the people cleaning these offices, delivering breakfast to workers in the financial services industry. Um, you know, she interviews a woman named Paloma from Colombia who actually cleaned um, offices in downtown Manhattan, one of which was actually the former Immigration and Naturalization Service Building. Uh, which then became ICE, INS became ICE in 2003. And on the morning of 9-11, she was working on the 40th floor of a government building when a fire erupted in the elevator. But the idea that they were invisible before, and even if they died, they were invisible in the memorial, in the grieving process. Um, and then obviously as a result, like as you mentioned, ICE was the creation of 9-11 paranoia. Um, and, you know, Carla's own father lost his driver's license. He was from Argentina. Uh, Governor Pataki uh, suspended all licenses of undocumented people, and he was no, no longer able to drive his taxi to support his family. It's, it's just, it is just, they really, these people got the short end of the stick in every way. This reminds me a bit of the land of open graves and the concept of ambiguous loss that we discussed or that Jess Murphy brought up in the last episode, the land of open graves by Jason DeLeon, um, who talks about in the Sonoran desert of Arizona, thousands of people of migrants just vanish. Um, and because the environment is so harsh, like their bodies just disintegrate um, and because they are people living on the fringes or there are people who are trying to escape and not be documented, they just disappear. Right. And yet, you know, when someone, well, not only dies a spectacular death, but this is so silly to bring up, but, but you know, I was rewatching Real Housewives of New York. And there's this, which I know it sounds insane to bring up at this moment, but uh, just, just in contrast, you know, there's like a two to three episode storyline about Carol Radziwill, um, who was married to Jackie Kennedy's nephew, Anthony Radziwill. And she was contacted, you know, gosh, decades later about, you know, her husband's remains, his ashes, and the urn in which they're contained uh, because the church that she, she entrusted them to was bought and going to be torn down. And they had the courtesy to call and she got to go and reclaim his remains. And it was around the time that, you know, you and I were doing all this reading and I, it just really put it into stark contrast how some people's remains are holy. <laughs> some people's burial grounds are holy and then others are completely ignored or glossed over, as you said, literally paved over. And, right, you know, a Walmart is erected over graves or bodies are exhumed to create Lake Berryessa or the L.A. River. Um, I think we're kind of talking about two things here. One is in the event of an ambiguous loss or, you know, when someone's body just vanishes – um, and can't be recovered. Um, often, not all the time, I think in, in terms of 9-11, it had a universalizing 
kind of effect that everyone, you know, no matter if they were someone with a big job at Cantor Fitzgerald or an undocumented, you know, custodian who cleaned that person's office, they were all subsumed and turned into ash in a way that it continues to be difficult to figure out who they are and to separate their remains. But what's often the case is the people who vanish, who are disappearable, who have, you know, these missing persons, ambiguous losses, often are people living at the margins and are the most vulnerable. I'm thinking of this amazing essay that was in GQ a long time ago that I read um, in a creative writing class by Vanessa Veselka. It's called Highway of Lost Girls. And it's about all of these teenage runaways and how often they are killed, um, especially in the era she's writing about when she was a teenage runaway in the 90s, this moment before people were as traceable and trackable as they are today. Um, And all of these girls just disappeared. And those are often the people who are killed and trafficked because it's thought that nobody really cares. Right. It's expected. Or so so are these girls mainly girls of color? Um, In this essay, it's sort of a mix. I mean, they're all uh, poor. I mean, you can definitely, when you look at, and by the way, I'm sure that this is something experienced by, by girls of, of all backgrounds. Um, But I think mainly it is the poor, it is the marginalized, and that is women of color. I know Gabrielle Union has been doing a lot to raise awareness. Um, And I know in the new season of her show, Truth Be Told, uh, with Octavia Spencer on Apple, uh, they're trying to raise awareness to the fact that so many Black girls go missing. Um, She said 71,000 Black girls under 17 went missing in 2021, and most were identified as runaways, which means they don't get an Amber Alert or law enforcement Mm. attention, Um, you know, whereas someone like Gabby Petito goes missing and everybody knows about her. Uh, There's hashtags and everyone is obsessed with finding her and figuring out what happened to her. Or Lacey Peterson. Right. Right. Of course. And Elizabeth Smart. Um, Also, it's a it's a epidemic um, among native communities. So many native women completely disappear uh, and it's a huge problem that sort of goes to another issue we wanted to talk about, which is been the discovery of mass graves, unmarked graves throughout North America and Canada and America um, from, you know, from the time, I guess, in the 19th century when we were displacing and trying to um, indoctrinate native children, uh, assimilate them, by teaching, by ripping them from their families um, and forbidding them. The Dawes Act, right. Right, uh, forbidding them from speaking in their native tongues. And I guess these boarding schools were extremely abusive places, um, similar to to the school that was portrayed uh, in the Nickel Boys novel by Colson Whitehead. Um, The Dozier School in Florida. Right. Yeah, I just want to read a few numbers from that. So for the first time in 2022, a federal study of Native American boarding schools was conducted. Um, These 
schools ran for over a century. And there were, so far, they've identified 400 schools that were actually supported by the U.S. government um, and 50 associated burial sites. So, you know, as I mentioned, children were taken from their homes and brought to these, I guess, very abusive schools that were oftentimes or most of the time run by priests, run by the church. Um, And the investigations so far have discovered 500 deaths at 19 schools, though the Interior Department said that number could climb to the thousands or even tens of thousands. Um, And I'm just so confused. (laughs) It just seems so insane that hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands of kids could go missing. Um, And the kind of systemic abuse and negligence and just general not giving a shit about these kids, it's just unfathomable to me. I don't understand. And then just the lack of recourse, I guess, these families had to do anything once their children were taken and they weren't able to follow up on their children. Um, It's just a travesty. And so that, again, shows you that some people are just are literally just disposed of in unmarked graves. That's why it's so hard for them to find find these bodies. And this tragic phenomenon, I thought, was captured beautifully by a short story from 2018 called Unearth uh, by Alicia Elliott. And I'm just going to read the first couple paragraphs. They found him while laying the groundwork for a fast food restaurant. She forgot the name as soon as the officer said it. Not McDonald's, not Wendy's. No, it was something new, something flashy and fleeting. Whatever it was, the thought made her sick. She couldn't shake the image of a child's tooth being pounded into beef patties or tiny brown limbs being thrown into an industrial-sized grinder. Sour fluids burned their way up her esophagus. She started to gag. Are you all right, ma'am? The officer asked. Henry's makeshift grave was on the grounds of the old residential school. Of course it was, of course. What was that famous Sir John A. Macdonald quote? Kill the Indian, save the man. Turned out killing the Indian saved no one. It just killed Indians. Hmm. So this is a, it's a fictional story, but it's obviously inspired by the true story of so many, so many people, family members of victims of these types of schools that were erected to assimilate and anglicize native kids um, by often baptizing them and converting them to to Christianity, giving them new names. Um, In this story, it's told through the perspective of a woman named Beth, um, but that wasn't her her given name when she was born. She's a member or former member of the Mohawk tribe. Um, She and her mother and brother were baptized by a, a Catholic priest Uh, and given names of English monarchs, Mary, Elizabeth, and Henry. Um, Her brother was sent to a residential school at the age of six and never came back. And uh, his remains were found 55 years later. And I just thought this was a really beautiful story. I can't really do it justice, but you should read it. (laughs) And um, it's really about the trauma of assimilation and the trauma of erasure of an entire identity, an entire community of people. Um, These kids were brought to these schools. They weren't allowed to speak in their native tongues. They, you know, they weren't allowed to grow their hair out um, or wear any of their, you know, traditional clothing. It's just terrible. And it, and it really reminds me a lot of, of the, the Dozier school in Florida, which was a school for 
juvenile delinquents, even though that term uh, was very loosely used because kids could go for something as innocuous as truancy. Sometimes kids were just deemed incorrigible and they were sent to the school from, you know, the ages were ranged from nine to 16 or something. And um, they beat the shit out of these kids and abused them sexually, physically, emotionally. And what I think happened is that in 2008, because this school ran for, for about 111 years from 1900 to 2011, which is crazy. But in 2008, uh, a student, a 14-year-old named Martin Lee Anderson, who was Black, was suffocated there. And that instigated an investigation there uh, that would later lead to the school being closed in 2011. And then a number of archaeological digs by the University of South Florida would unearth something like 55 burials in unmarked graves. I mean, I think it, I think the number is even higher than that, honestly. Um, because yeah. and just so everyone uh, knows, the novel "The The Nickel Boys" by Colson Whitehead is a fictionalized history of the school, and I believe yeah, it I... opens with the archaeological dig, or does it end with it? No, it, it it opens with that. Um, it opens with Elmore Curtis, who's our main mm-hmm. character, right? And he has a business. Um, it, I think it's in 2011 in New York. And he's a business owner in New York. And he gets a call that th- they found all of these bodies, all of these remains, because mm-hmm. um, they're definitely not bodies anymore, because it's so long ago. Um, and right. he's asked, so he starts thinking about his time at the school. Um, so there were a number of digs. Um, so 2012, they found 55 uh, unmarked graves. Um, and then in 2016, they started making matches. I think they've made about 21 matches, but they're continuing to identify these remains, which reminds me a lot of the 9-11 victims and the dust, like we yeah. talked about with, with Layla and Jessica. Um, right. And then in 2019, 27 more graves were found. And people who went there think that over 100 bodies have been buried um, on the school grounds or or in the nearby surrounding property mm. and woods. So both of these stories, I guess both are fiction based on real systemic tragedies, reminds me of, I think, around Halloween when we were reading Taya Miles' Tales from the Haunted South. She talks about the Indian Cemetery and the African-American or enslaved African-American cemetery sort of twins of each other or twin ghosts. Um, And I wanted to read the quote, the Indian cemetery stands in for a past native presence, signaling the demise of the actual Indian, naturalizing native people as features of an American landscape and containing negative emotion for those who now occupy the land. So think poltergeist, for example. The enslaved African-American ghost is the Indian ghost's double. While the Red Ghost keeps alive the memory of Indian removal in U.S. history, representing white terror and lament, the Black Ghost marks the demonic spirit of possession through which Americans transformed people into things. And the whole demonic spirit of possession thing is obviously such a trope in so much American or really like transatlantic literature, because right now I'm thinking of Bertha Mason in um, Jane Eyre, and I know she's alive, but it's such a 
trope or a kind of later it's not necessarily an adaptation but inspired by a Jane Eyre movie called I Walked with a Zombie it does the same thing in in the Caribbean I don't know if anybody's ever seen that it's a pretty <laughs> um esoteric reference but I mean you see that all the time I mean what are some other films where it's like the demonic possession happens. Oh, uh, with enslaved people. I mean, I remember seeing this movie with Kate Hudson in the theater called the skeleton key and Mm. it was set in the South and you got the sense that I actually think it was revealed that these people were being possessed by former slaves in the house. And it sort Mm. of had that, it it was like, it was sort of like voodoo porn, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Well, um, like the voodoo stuff obviously is real and in a sense historically rooted, of course. And I'm thinking of new when you go to New Orleans and Taya Miles goes to, I think, New Orleans, Charleston, and Savannah and studies what ghost tours of places like plantations or homes in which enslaved people worked, what they're like and their, you know, kind of ridiculously kitschy experiences. Mm-hmm. Um But one thing with ghost stories is that, according to Taya Miles, they reveal something that's historically been left out of traditional narratives about the past, and that makes them interesting or possibly true. But they also are ghost stories, so they're taken much less seriously, and they become commodified and kitschified. And that goes back to the reading we did in in preparing for part one of this series, Making Tragic Places, Dark Tourism, Kitsch, and the Commodification of Atrocity by Philip Stone and Alex Grebenar. They reference uh, the work of someone named John Westbrook in 2002 who wrote, Kitsch is inherently self-delusional and those who buy into sentimentality without a sense of irony are misguided. And this is something that uh, Taya Miles often saw on um, the ghost tours, especially of plantations. It's always this, you know, haunted, enslaved woman, often kind of the tragic mulatto narrative who commits suicide because she's been scorned and she's in love with the master or and like she's killed by the enslaver's wife. Um, Like, narratives that probably are very far from truth and lack much nuance. And I just think the idea that kitsch is self-delusional is really interesting. Um, It makes me think, I don't know if I've mentioned it thus far in the podcast, but of the Eufaula pilgrimage, I've talked about Eufaula earlier in the context of um, Lake Eufaula. Eufaula is the town that our maternal grandfather's family lived in for several generations, importantly, from uh, the period of Indian removal through, I guess, uh, World War II. So pretty um, historically significant time period to be living in the American South. But the, the pilgrimage is an event that's happened every year since, I believe, 1965. And in the same way that a lot of Confederate monuments were erected at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, you can kind of tell what this was part of that psychology or politics would be behind putting on an event like this. And the pilgrimage is an event that 
is a tour of antebellum homes. It's still advertised as, quote, a nostalgic return to the old South, the days when cotton was king, come visit one of Alabama's friendliest towns. And, you know, for the past, I guess, 50 years, they've held it, they meaning the white population of Eufaula, the people who still live in these historic many of which are antebellum homes that were built by enslaved people. And they have a pilgrimage court every year made up of all white, you know, teenage girls, the pilgrimage queen, the pilgrimage princess, whatever, uh, who wear, you know, yeah, like colorful flounces and, and hoop skirts and wave from the Shorter Mansion Museum. Um, <laughs> and it's very kitschy um but it's also very honestly disturbing um because it tells revisionist yeah a revisionist idealized version of the past that honestly idealizes slavery and um really turns enslaved people into objects um which i guess they would have been seen as uh you know prior to the civil war as well. But um, same with the presence of indigenous Americans, namely the Eufaula, which were uh, would become part of the Creek Nation. Um, the Eufaulas inhabited the area, but then were forced westward along the Trail of Tears. And even like the nature path in Eufaula that you can walk along is called Yoholo Miko Trail, which is named after the chief of the Ufalas. And, you know, you see like a cartoon picture of him there. And it's like, that's an example of kind of the kitchification of atrocity. Um, right. But it's not really seen as such. Um, right. I was really struck when we went to Ufala. It's where both our grandparents were buried, are buried. The, the juxtaposition between these historic antebellum homes. And by the way, a lot of locals pride themselves on the fact that, that, that their homes, that this town was not raised by the union army. When general Sherman, the union general was making his way to the sea that someone had, you know, sent out a messenger or raised the white flag or something so that their homes would be, would be saved from the army. And so they really pride themselves on like, this is, this is the real antebellum South. You know, these homes haven't been touched mm-hmm. since, since they were built. The juxtaposition between those homes and gas stations and fast food restaurants and just so much poverty. Um, and you get the sense that that's like, this is their economy, sort of the, the pilgrimage and the, these tours. And it's just wild. Right. Well, that's sort of why these people who still live in their ancestral homes cling so fiercely to a certain skewed version of the past or to their family names, they're still so important there in a way that they're not, you know, to us. Because Eufaula was this wealthy cotton shipping port, and then obviously the end of slavery, the, do you know about the boll weevil epidemic? Okay. Oh, with the cotton? Yeah, I just want to look up the year bull weevil epidemic. In the 1920s, so after Reconstruction, 
um, the boll weevil, a beetle that feeds on cotton buds and flowers native to Mexico, migrated um, into the U.S. and infested, uh, you know, all of these southern cotton growing areas. And it was totally devastating for the southern economy, which now the labor force was mostly made up of sharecroppers, but um, also uh, somebody we're related to at some uncle several times removed uh, named Reuben Cobb. He kind of made it his mission to try and diversify the agriculture of Southeast Alabama. Um, and he invented some breed of watermelons called Cobb's Gems. But uh, he also went to cities in the north where there were growing populations of uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe, so places like Milwaukee um, and and Cleveland, and recruited uh, poor whites to become farm laborers in the south. And I don't know, I, I thought that that was pretty interesting and also speaks to with the second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan that targets not only black people and people basically enforcing reconstruction, the second clan would also target Eastern Europeans, Jews, Catholics, you know, Polish people. But something I wanted to say about the land that Reuben Cobb had, it was a former plantation actually known as Wood Lane. Uh, sometimes it's spelled as Wood Lawn. And um, I'm not sure. I've been on a tour of this former plantation, which was very interesting. The man who inherited it through his mother is actually a really wonderful man who is trying to sell it, but he doesn't know like what what to do with it. It's now next to you know a Walmart super center, I think. And Reuben Cobb bought Wood Lane, I think, in the 1890s. I could be getting the date wrong. Um, but pre bull weevil stuff. And um, prior to that, though, it was owned by a man named John Rains, who was an enslaver. And John Rains, before he died, I think he died in the 1850s, he had willed the land to a woman he enslaved, who was commonly known as Yellow Girl Mary. And often when you see yellow, that means that Mary was light skinned, probably as a result of, you know, I don't know if you want to figure it as rape or not. Uh, to me, existing in that continuum of coercion, of course, there's no way to consent. But anyways, Reigns willed Mary and her three daughters, whom I guess he had fathered, the land, I think arranged for them to go to Ohio I don't, I don't know. It's, it's sort of unclear. I guess they would get the money from the sale of the land and then become free women in Ohio. Um, but obviously the Civil War broke out. Rain's family members, his white family members, contested the will. Mary and her daughters never ended up getting Wood Lane. And instead, it was later bought by Reuben Cobb, who we're not a direct descendant of, but somehow within our family. Um and eventually, Wood Lane was bought um, by a woman named Ann Wilson, 
um, I can't remember the name of, of her husband. She was a very, she grew up very, very poor in a town called Screamer, Alabama. And she, um, when she got married to a wealthy guy, she said, I want to live in that big house in, in that plantation, on that plantation. That's, you know, that's what I want. And sort of interesting that like a, that would be most attractive to a poor white person. Um, kind of the psychology behind that. And she was someone who was very keen on showing off her wealth. I visited the house that is pretty much as it was in the 70s or maybe early 80s when she died. There's a huge oil portrait of her and apparently was painted in like July or August in Alabama when it's so hot, but she's wearing all her furs, you know, because she wanted to show that she could afford these furs. And, um, you know, the furniture is flown in from like France and um, everything super fancy. But at this point, all that wealth is just dilapidated and the house Mm. is completely falling apart um right and when you tour wood lane or at least when i did back in i guess that would have been 2016 you got a little pamphlet about it and it's just it is kitschy you know like oh this yellow girl mary she was sleeping with her master and it's like no that's like probably not (laughs) really how it happened um I'm really curious this year though because I'm going to the pilgrimage um at the end of March and for the first time they're going to have a plantation on the tour Ufala is a town where the the planter families didn't live on their plantations they lived in homes in the town and then the plantations were like on the outskirts um but I just wonder how that it's going to go down, you know? Right. And like Eufaula right. is an Alabama state, which recently banned critical race theory or whatever they think that that means. Well, um, I mean, you've, you've done, you've done so much research into this and into our family history. It's pretty remarkable and um, shameless plug, but Carrie wrote an incredible thesis about this at Stanford called A Dream Remembered. Um, I hate the title, but yeah. I love it. It's from Gone with the Wind. (laughs) She won all of these awards and it's an incredible piece of writing. They never amounted to anything, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was an amazing thesis. Um, And also Carrie has been to a Civil War reenactment, not a Civil War reenactment, Carrie. What did you go with mom to Yeah, it was... We went to, this is actually really interesting because rather than like a battle reenactment, we went and saw women like cosplaying as Confederate wives um, in Virginia. And they, you know, ha- have these outfits custom made and they spend the weekend and some bring their daughters like needle pointing and boiling eggs and sitting around a fire wearing snoods. and. um yeah, it's it's certainly interesting. I met a woman there who she was the only black person there and she was a dermatologist from Maryland and I guess she also used to do battle reenactments where obviously she'd be dressed as a man and I kind of asked her, you know, like what is it like? I mean, you're 
I probably asked this in like a less direct way, but you know, why are you interested in this? Were your ancestors like, tell me about it. And, you know, she herself was the product of, I mean, what would have been known at least after the war as miscegenation, you know, racial amalgamation. Um, And she, she still recognized the white lines in her family. Um, I don't know. It it was very interesting to talk to this, this person who was like very committed to, I don't think that her psychology is the same as the other women who are in this reenactment weekend, but I don't know. I would have to talk to her again, but yeah, that is fascinating. Um, no, I think, and as you're, as you're talking about all this, I keep thinking about slave play mm-hmm. by Jeremy O'Harris, um, which is a truly, it is a wild ride of a play. So you, it opens and you think we're in the antebellum pre-Civil War South and we're, we're watching a strange plantation exploitation story unfold, but then you realize that we're actually in present day and we're watching these simulated fantasies that three, I want to say three interracial couples are uh, experimenting with and have, have signed up to, to do, to sort of deal with the power differentials in their relationship and deal with, um, I think there is an element of like, oh, this is, this is this exotic, sexy thing um, that isn't at all, all violence and, you know, lack of consent and the brutality of it is completely erased in order to make it palatable to tourists. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, it's a love story. And um, like Sally Hemings. Right. Right. Sally. Right. Of course, you know, uh, who, uh, who had, how do I say, (laughs) I guess was raped by Thomas Jefferson. I mean, how can you have consensual sex when you are an enslaved person? I mean, that's right. Right. It's just impossible. I mean, I would recommend Annette Gordon reads the Hemingses of Monticello because it's, it's much more nuanced than that. Like you can't say that those relationships were consensual, but in the case of Sally Hemings, Annette Gordon Reed says there were ways in which she leveraged her position, particularly as a light-skinned enslaved woman, to have a degree of power or at least agency. agency yeah. But that's not to say, you know, so. Right. Do you get what I'm trying to say about the kitsch and the, like, it, it's almost like a Harlequin romance. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and it's always that the the tragic mulatto stock character is often cursed and her demise is due to her sexuality and that her, yeah, like she is exotic and she's almost white but not quite white. And it reminds me of uh, there's a really good piece by historian Walter Johnson about this young woman named Alexina Morrison, who I can't remember what state. Oh, she was from Mississippi, or she ended up enslaved in Mississippi, and she um, sued for her freedom 
claiming, oh, I'm actually white and I was kidnapped from, I think, Missouri or something and I'm actually white and this is fraud and I was never meant to be an enslaved person. And you see in the decades leading up to the Civil War, a kind of entrenchment of rules like quantums of you know, black blood and names like Quadroon, Octoroon, um, Griff, Mulatto, all of these kind of like a racial taxonomy that becomes really prevalent in New Orleans showrooms. But anyway, Alexina Morrison said, I'm white, therefore I'm not meant to be a slave. And there was no way to really trace her ancestry or try and figure out, well, what if she's an eighth black and she's, you know, quote unquote, passing for white. And eventually the Civil War broke out and well, the case was still, you know, being litigated. And they determined, I think that she, they determined that she was white by looking at a, like a lock of her hair, some kind of pseudoscientific thing to determine like whether the hair follicles were ovals or, or circles or something like that. But women and girls like Alexina Morrison were often marketed as, quote, fancy girls in New Orleans showrooms and were sold at very high prices um, as kind of companions to enslavers. That's a euphemism, obviously, uh, for the purposes they were expected to serve Um yeah, I, I wanted to read this quote, Ellie, from Absalom Absalom. The other sex is separated into three sharp divisions, separated two of them by a chasm which could be crossed but one time and in one direction. Ladies, women, and females, the virgins whom gentlemen someday married, the courtesans to whom they went while on sabbaticals to the city, the slave girls and women upon whom that first caste rested, and to whom in certain cases it doubtless owed the very fact of its virginity. So I know we went a little off the rails this episode and didn't quite stick to our own agenda, but that's okay. This was a great conversation, and I hope we were able to explore how the invention of race and the entrenchment of American caste systems yield real material consequences that persist after death, that you know the inequality at the heart of the American experience continues post-mortem. So thank you so much for joining us. And since we didn't get to talk about everything we wanted to today, surprise, there's going to be a part four. And we really hope you'll join us for that. We're going to talk about lots of interesting things, including the Equal Justice Initiatives Community Remembrance Project for lynching victims in the South. We're going to talk about a Microsoft Data Center's destruction of a historic Black cemetery in Virginia. Uh, Lake Berryessa, Heart Island, which is really fascinating, and the Bodies Exhibit, um, which is really what started this whole series. So I'm excited to finally get to it. So thank you for tuning in and sticking around. Love you guys, and we'll see you soon. Bye.